0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Welcome, everyone, to episode 58 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton. And on this week's episode of the podcast, we are renewing our analysis of the Scott Harvey coined U-Piss genre that is emotionally withdrawn people in space with James Gray's deeply introspective sci-fi action epic Ad Astra. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, Scott., uh, It's been a long weekend. I uh, went down to South Carolina. visited my old alma mater, a couple of my friends from college who are still uh, working down around there. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun. we uh, we got to see Furman uh, win yesterday. They're doing quite well. if you uh, happen to be a FCS football fan, they're uh, they're gonna be probably ranked top ten in the FCS this week, so uh, that's pretty cool um and yeah just enjoying Greenville which is a pretty fun city if you've never uh been there before really growing and on the rise um and so yeah it was a lot of fun got to see Furman Soccer get her dub too so uh all around good weekend for Furman Sports and uh had a really fun time and got to catch this movie as well so I'm excited to talk about it yeah no it's
0: uh it's always a good time to go back to your alma mater I uh did a couple times over the summer and it was amazing I'm We'll hopefully get out there sometime this fall, maybe for homecoming. But uh, it's always it's always nice to re you know go back to all your old haunts, your old stomping grounds, things like that. Especially if you can do it with the people that you were there with originally.
1: Yeah, we had we had a good time reminiscing about uh some of our some of our stories. My uh, friend remarked as we passed our freshman dorm, you know, we used to run this place. I take it that true, might be an but, exaggeration. Um, we like to think <laughs> yeah that,
0: we like to think that it was yeah. We all look back at history usually with some rose colored glasses on it. So who can, who can blame you guys? Absolutely. All right, Scott, our listeners will know well your hesitations with the upis piss genre after you were disappointed by at least certain aspects of first man last year and are not the biggest fan of gravity. And you have reserved expectations, I believe for Lucy in the sky, which I, I think it's coming out next month, but today we're talking about Brad Pitt and his turn as an ostensibly emotionally withdrawn man in space as he plays the lead Roy McBride in James Gray's Ad Astra. Set in a near future where Earth and the entire solar system is threatened by antimatter reactions causing widespread power surges, the U.S. Space Command tasks Pitt's Major Roy McBride with traveling to Mars to attempt to contact his father, world-famous astronaut Dr. H. Clifford McBride, played by Tommy Lee Jones. The elder McBride was believed to have disappeared 16 years prior and 10 years into a voyage into deep space as the leader of the Lima Project, an expedition to Neptune to search for intelligent alien life outside of the Milky Way. With new intelligence, Spacecom now believes that it is Roy's father who is threatening the Milky Way with these antimatter reactions, and they need Roy to help stop him. Scott, any further from the story would probably only do our listeners a disservice if they haven't seen the movie already. So why don't we stop there and start our discussion. Was Ad Astra an out-of-this-world experience for you, or did its effect fall well below its aim of the stars?
1: Yeah, you know, you joke about uh, the oopist the genre, which we've mentioned before, and uh, as you point out, I think First Man definitely is the most recent example of that, and I think just by the nature of having a movie with an emotionally withdrawn main character, uh, you know, you're kind of setting yourself up to have a movie that uh, is hard to connect with and, you know, remains at a distance for a long running time, and I think that was one of my main problems with First Man, as uh, impressive as a technical spectacle that it was, but... I don't. I did not have that problem with uh, with Ad Astra. In fact, I didn't have very many problems at all with Ad Astra. I think this is a pretty spectacular movie, Scott. Um, and I think just getting at uh, you know the the dichotomy I was talking about there. I think one of the reasons it, one of the reasons it is so successful is because it doesn't just present us with an emotionally withdrawn character and ask us to uh, you know care for, care about this person. Uh, instead it tries to sort of explain the phenomenon of, you know, what is it about space that causes people to become emotionally withdrawn? And what is it about the people who decide to go to space? Uh, you know, what is, what is, what is their decision to go to space say about them? So, uh, it's a lot more philosophical and, uh, you know, Wants to figure out why these people are so emotionally withdrawn. Uh, and I, so I think that's one aspect where it sort of gets over some of the, avoids some of the pitfalls, maybe that this type of movie uh, often falls prey to I think another way that it does. That is through this main character of Roy McBride, who his, his, he is emotionally withdrawn. Yes. On the surface. Um, but we also have this internal monologue, uh, this voiceover monologue that I thought worked really, really well. Um, which is basically his raw, like, uh, emotions. And for reasons that we'll get into, you know, he's, he's keeping those, uh, inside. Uh, but you know, a- as much as, uh, his, his external, uh, appearance may be just as stoic as, as Ryan Gosling in first man, um, there is an emotional hook here, uh, you know, make no mistake. Uh, and I think it's, it's a powerful one, uh in certain scenes and in in the moments where it needs to be. I think James Gray directs with a really brilliant uh, hand and eye here. Um, You know, this is a a great movie. Maybe maybe didn't uh, wow me quite uh, on the same technical level that First Man did, but make no mistake, it is a great movie to look at. Uh, and it sounds great score by Max Richter, who did the score for The Leftovers, which, uh, as you know, Scott and our listeners may know, is one of my all time favorite shows. And the score is, is absolutely spectacular uh, in The Leftovers. So I'm not surprised that his work is is equally great here uh, in Ad Astra. But, yeah, you know, Scott, this movie is not doing well with audiences. And that doesn't surprise me. I, I kind of thought um, going into this, that it would be the type of movie that it ended up being, right? Like this isn't star Wars. Um, it, there's, there's no, there, there are action scenes, but this isn't some sort of swashbuckling adventure film. This is, uh, a deeply thoughtful and, uh, introspective film. <laughs> and so I think, uh, audiences probably did not get what they were expecting. Um, you know, I said, I expected it, but that's just because James Gray, is known for being a, a more thoughtful director and like the lost city of Z, which was his last movie, um, was kind of presented almost like an Indiana Jones sort of adventure romp. And, um, you know, was definitely not that I, I didn't see the film, but I've read enough about, uh, that film and James Gray's work in general to know that, uh, much like ad Astra, this is a movie that, you know, probably appeals to a different audience than the one it's, it's trying to, you know, be marketed at. Um, because I do think there was there was more of a push here than even with the previous films to market this to a mainstream audience, and it doesn't seem to have succeeded. Um, you know, just to give you an example, there were two gentlemen sitting behind me at this movie, um, one of whom exclaimed to his friend about twenty five minutes in, "This is like one of those art house movies." Um, and then at the end of the movie, I heard them like almost immediately after the credits started rolling, I heard one of them exclaim that they should have gone to see Rambo: Last Blood instead. Um, and yeah, uh, they probably should have uh, because if if uh, if they were on the fence between those two movies and they chose Ad Astra, they were probably never going to be satisfied with what they got in this movie because you know it's it's not a space opera, it's not a, a sci-fi actioner, really, and. I think it's all the better for that. I think uh, you know the people who uh, appreciate this movie for what it is are really going to appreciate it because it is, um, like I said, a pretty spectacular film overall. Um, You know, just not the one that people were expecting to get, and and that's perfectly fine. You know, if this movie tanks at the box office, I'm sure that will be a disappointment for. It's not tanking good. Uh, well, I'll be interested to see like what the second weekend drop off is, right? Because maybe some people went into the movie the first weekend like, oh, I saw the trailers for this. Uh but maybe as word of mouth spreads more, it might fall off because the audience score is really low. It's like in the 40s on Rotten Tomatoes, I think. And the cinema score, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I guess it's probably like a C. Um, it got to be it got to be minus. Okay, well that's a little bit better than I expected, but it's still you're you see a definite disconnect between the audience score and the critic score. And I think that's understandable after you see the film, but, um, you know, what I will say is, um, invest in this movie, be patient with it. Um, you know, really, really commit to this movie. And I think it will reward you, um, tenfold because, um, if you, uh, if you go in with an open mind and, um, you know, really surrender to, uh, what this movie does present then I think, uh, you're going to find yourself satisfied because it's one of the best that this year has to offer for me.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm really interested to go back and watch, you know, James Gray's two other really prominent movies, lost you know, lost city of Z and the immigrant, uh, because I also really loved this movie. I think this is one of my, what's definitely in my top 10 easily for the year. I think it might even be in my top five. I'm, I'm, I'm still ruminating on it, still thinking about it more. I, I want to go see it again in the next week because there isn't really a big release coming out next week. So I expect to go see it, you know, maybe at least one more time while it's still in theaters. Because it is it is a movie theater experience to see this movie. I mean, you talk about maybe there are certain technical aspects that don't quite hit the heights of First Man. And I think that I agree with that. And I, and I definitely mentioned or alluded to that in my Letterbox review. But one of the things that I feel really strongly about is that, like, this is in that bucket of movie that is so worth going to see on the biggest screen you can watch it on. You know, its it's visuals maybe aren't as arresting as Interstellar or First Man, for that matter. But nevertheless, the color palette of this movie is spectacular. The shots in this movie are spectacular. I still think the visual effects in this movie are extremely good. You know, things things out in deep space when you start to get that direction are, are really gorgeous. And there's a there's a couple... Scenes and the cinematography, uh, the work being done there by, I believe it's Hoyt Van Hoytema. Uh, I think that he he does an amazing job with the cinematography, and then of course the visual effects, like I already mentioned, are beautiful. And not just that. Another thing that I I found really, I don't know, really satisfying was that you know I, I, I our listeners will not be surprised to know that I see the vast majority of my movies that I watch by myself because I could never convince my friends to go watch like seventy plus movies a year with me. But This is a movie. When you talk about, you know, you talk about an emotionally withdrawn person in space, kind of, kind of movie, and and I think that this does fall into that category ostensibly. And then, you know, you've already alluded to how you don't feel like it exactly fits some of the other movies in this genre, and and I completely agree. And I can go into more of that later. But I I think that this movie is such an experience to have alone in a movie theater. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be other people in the theater, because I think that there that does enhance the experience to some extent but I think this this would be a movie that would be totally fine to get like go to your local IMAX scene and if you're the only person in the theater that's totally okay because the thing that this yeah. movie you know uh, forces you to wrestle with that presents to you on the screen are things that are really worth thinking about by yourself and it's a solemn solitary movie that is worth seeing in the same state uh, as Brad Pitt and uh, you know you know you, you talk about how he has to about whether or not this movie philosophically asks the question around is it emotionally withdrawn people or does going to space make you emotionally withdrawn or do emotionally withdrawn people go to space and really kind of explores that question yeah. and i think that you see that like one it, it asks that question and and really presents an argument i think uh one way and and i also think that you get that just visually on screen i mean Brad Pitt is the lead actor in, in this Movie And it has a pretty robust supporting cast between Tommy Lee Jones, Liv Tyler, Donald Sutherland, Ruth Naga, a bunch of other people as well that are just slipping my mind uh, at the moment. Uh, But is there a single character who gets more than five minutes of screen time besides Brad Pitt? I'm not sure. The supporting cast is so fleeting. Um, And so this entire movie is completely carried by Brad Pitt. He does an amazing job. We'll get to that performance here in a second but it it really just speaks to not only are you are you getting a, a movie that's forcing you to wrestle with the idea of what is it about people or what are the characteristics of someone who like goes to space but it also is showing you that by like you are with this one character and this one character only for pretty much the entire movie and so it it really it really invests in this idea of making you wrestle with that. And so I think that to complement that really well, like to go to the movie theater and watch this by yourself is also a really, a really great experience, I think. And arguably the best way to experience this movie in my opinion. But uh, I also won't uh, begrudge someone who wants to go see it with friends because most people like me, uh, unlike me don't go see movies by themselves. Uh, That, that being said, I think, uh, you know, what you were saying earlier about, uh, Pitt not being an McBride, Roy McBride not being an emotionally withdrawn character. Uh, it, 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 it's so much more than that, right? Like, yes, he is he is emotionally withdrawn, ostensibly on the surface. Like I mentioned in kind of the primer, like you mentioned in your general impressions. But I think I think the character, because it, not just the internal monologue that you get with with Pitt, which works for me most of the time, maybe not all the time. Uh, I just really enjoy how this movie dives into the dives into the fact and doesn't just accept. Doesn't just accept certain things about this character. Really explores them. Really goes into all right. What is it? What is it that has made Brad Pitt this way? What is it? More generally, that forces people to go to space. And like, what is it that Brad Pitt is searching for out in space? What is it that you know his dad? You know, Tommy Lee Jones Clifford McBride. What what was he searching for out in space? Um, And then why ultimately, when you come back from space, what what is different? And I just think it's a really great movie. It's it's totally up my alley. It's what I've wanted from a lot of other movies, I don't think it's perfect, and I can get into some of the reasons why it's not exactly on the money for me. But it's still one of my favorite movies of the year, and uh, honestly, I, I can't wait to go re- not revisit, but visit for the first time—some of James Gray's uh, back catalog of movies.
1: Yeah, I'm in the same boat of you as you. This has definitely uh, made me more intrigued to see his movies, and I just—I do just want to be clear that um, even though this isn't the action—actiony. R- romp that maybe some people expected i totally agree this needs to be seen on uh the big screen and yeah i think that watching it in solitude is a uh you know as brad pitt in solitude for a lot of the movie um even if he looks forward to being out of solitude or whatever the exact line he says in the movie is but um because it does allow you to you know invest what the the mental energy that needs to be invested in the movie and uh you know to to be patient with the movie and and you know just commit 100% because you do have to kind of do that to to appreciate it and um the less distractions the better i suppose but definitely a movie you should see on the big screen um there are still some spectacular visuals um which we'll talk about
0: yeah and there still are also some spectacular action scenes too i mean you talk about this not being a swashbuckling yeah. action film but, I mean, I think the we'll get to it a little bit later on, but a couple of the action scenes, one in particular, really deliver maybe one of the best scenes of the year. All right, Scott, might as well jump in now. And I will actually, before we do, I will say that I think the exact quote is, I'm looking forward to the day my solitude ends. Uh, but That's it. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't matter. Uh, neither here nor there. So why don't we go ahead and jump into Roy McBride, Brad Pitt. It's his second big role of the year. Uh, second big role of the summer because I think technically the summer hasn't ended yet when we, when we saw Ad Astra. Uh, Maybe by the time the podcast drops, Summer will have ended technically. But, uh, you know, it's his second big role, and you can – we had this sort of delay in the film's release. It was originally supposed to come out, I believe, before Endgame in April, and then it got pushed back. Uh, to, you know, the end of the summer and then push back a little bit further here to this date, you know, this weekend. And one of the last, you know, the third weekend of September. And it worried us a little bit, especially because it was a 20th Century Fox production. So with the whole Disney transaction, we didn't know if Disney might just put this film out to pasture, uh, not unlike uh, X-Men Dark Phoenix and uh, things like that. But, you know, uh, I think it was a smart decision and it was a a wise decision to know that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was coming and you could really ride ride the sort of uh you know residual marketing wave of that film of brad pitt in that movie you know scott we both liked brad pitt and once upon a time in hollywood and i think the question you have to ask yourself now and that i'm asking you is brad pitt even better in ad astra
1: it's hard to compare them because they are so different i think that in once upon a time in hollywood it really sort of played to his strengths maybe and relied on that natural movie star charisma that he has to sell a character like cliff booth um here i think you know, it's a little bit of a more of an outside the box role for Brad Pitt. And, ma- you know, maybe ultimately that makes it a stronger performance, because I think he is just as strong here as he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I already talked about sort of the the two sides of this character. I think he portrays uh both of them really well. The, you know, steely exterior, which I think, you know, is something that Ryan Gosling uh, is good at portraying uh, as he did in First Man and as he does in pretty much every movie he's in. Um but I think he really contrast Brad Pitt really contrasts that well with uh, this internal monologue. And obviously, um, we have to rely solely on his words uh, and his delivery of the that monologue for the emotion because we're not seeing uh, really much of you know, body language or facial expression uh, of anything from him. Uh, and I think he does that so I think this internal monologue relies on. It, it's it's very like for a movie that is so heady um it's very like sort of sentimental at times but i think it makes sense um in the context of the movie but and, and i think that the way that Brad Pitt uh, delivers those lines does really give you that emotional hook did have me far more connected to that character than i was with with Neil Armstrong in First Man i think that maybe some of the relationships between Brad Pitt and the other characters particularly his wife played by Liv Tyler um you know, are a bit undercooked. If I had to put point to one thing in the movie that, um, left a little bit to be desired. Maybe it's that, but, uh, you know, when it's just Brad Pitt on screen or when it's Brad Pitt and his father, uh, I think that, you know, Brad Pitt really shines. It's another, uh, performance that will deservedly be in the Oscar conversation. Um, and yeah, we, we've seen different sides of him this year. Um, but, uh, you know, both both uh, both sides uh, are very worthy and uh, you know if they if he ends up in both categories uh, nominated at the Oscars uh, I won't be displeased at all
0: yeah I, I agree I mean you you talk about these being two very different characters and you're definitely right about that it, it, I think that there are maybe some similar characteristics I mean I think they're both a little bit they're both they're both reserved but then I would say they were reserved in different ways I mean Cliff Booth you don't really get much from him you don't exactly always know what he's thinking uh and that's a different in a different way that is true for Roy. like we know what he what roy is thinking because he has this internal monologue but the delivery of that visually on screen through his you know through his um you know his subtle gestures you know his facial expressions things like that that's where you you get all that you know that emotion or lack thereof and you try to really read into that experience and i think brad pitt is doing so much work not just from a, a voice acting perspective when you talk about that internal monologue that he's having but also all the communication that he's doing you know with his expressions with his face even in moments where he's by himself or right? even when he's not necessarily interacting with other, other people there's you know there's a couple moments in particular about halfway through the point in the movie when uh I guess not to throw any spoilers in, but you know, basically, he's on his way to Mars, and they stop at a at a you know a, a spacecraft that has, is sending a distress signal. And I think that that sequence, you just see so much going on uh, in his facial expressions, uh, even though he's not necessarily talking with anyone, or he's not interacting with anyone in, in some of those moments. And I think it just works; it works really well for me. I also just think Brad Pitt is. I mean, it, it, I talked about this when we when we before or during when we reviewed once upon a time in hollywood where he hadn't really done something that was you know up to his standards in many many years at that point and now he's done two in one year i think he absolutely crushes this role you it's hard to even imagine anyone else playing this character which is not something that i say all that often but it really just feels like brad pitt nailed it i mean yes he doesn't he doesn't layer on the charisma and the charm or it's not as needed in this role as it is in once upon a time in hollywood but you can tell that he does have some of those characteristics still maybe he's not like cliff booth he's not leaning into that in this film but he still has that charisma and that charm that he uses to endear himself to people because on the surface he still is you know an emotionally withdrawn person and so he you know he has to find some way to, to get people to like him. And I think that, that that is an aspect of his character that is subtle and well used in this film. You know, I don't want to be too repetitive because I think that you've really laid out a really strong argument for all the things that I believe about Brad Pitt's performance here. And all, I, all I'll say is that one of the things that I think surprised me the most and in, in, in a very positive way by the end of the, you know, at the end of the film is, is the character arc and journey that this, this, that Brad Pitt goes on, you know, beyond just, you know looking for his father right and you know we'll talk about the ending etc but i just i just was so pleasantly surprised because uh, i was so disappointed in some ways with the narrative arc of ryan gosling's character from first man last year uh, neil armstrong uh I-, I really had the opposite experience with mcbride
1: yeah no ab- absolutely brad pitt uh he- he's really having quite the year as much as we uh we talk about maybe the Keanu Sans uh in 2019 or maybe even the uh the Shia Sans uh with uh peanut butter falcon and honey boy i think for me the 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 Pitta-sants is the one that uh really stands out
0: and this will be the time on the podcast where we decide we are not going to use any of those phrases ever again <laughs> I'm yeah uh once was enough <laughs> yeah uh yeah i mean 2019 you know pre july 27th or whatever day once upon a time in Hollywood came out was probably the year of Keanu. But since then uh, Brad Pitt has has taken his, his time in the spotlight for sure. And I don't think he has anything else coming out this year, but Scott uh, I will take it a step further than that right now. I expect we will see Brad Pitt in both uh, both acting categories because I think both of these performances are, are worthy nominees. Uh, I mean, I don't actually remember James Gray, whether either of his previous movies got any Oscar noms for anyone involved from an acting perspective. I think I think some of them might have got some other uh, nominations, but uh, I I think this this could this could be the one that breaks through for the acting side of things for James Gray's movies. And uh, I'm well-deserved in my opinion. I don't think there are too many roles quite like this one out there, at least so far this year. And uh, uh, if there are, I don't think that they've had the same impact or impression on me that Brad Pitt's uh, performance here as Roy has. All right, Scott, I mentioned there's a bunch of people in the supporting cast. Why don't we pick uh, each one MVP from the supporting cast to talk about briefly?
1: Yeah, for me, it's going to be Tommy Lee Jones. I think uh, he probably has the most screen time of anyone in the supporting cast, although, as you note, it's still not very much. Um, But I think it's a very anti Tommy Lee Jones performance. I think even uh, at, in his, you know, he, he's getting up there in the years. Uh, it's nice to see him challenging himself with a role like this. Cause I think Tommy Lee Jones is known for being, you know, the gruff, uh, you know, authoritarian guy, um, you know, a la his Oscar winning, uh, role in the fugitive. Uh, but he has to show a lot of vulnerability in this role, uh, as, uh, as Brad Pitt's father, um, who, uh, you know, has, you know, experienced isolation, uh, out in space and um you know has his reasons as to why he went to space in the first place again to get to some of the themes of the movie um and you know i I don't want to say too much but uh this character um has been changed by his experience in space and i think that tommy lee jones uh portrays that in a in a you know a a really effective way the sort of empty vacant stare that he has um you know after he's he's been uh he's been out in space for quite a while. Uh, I think, you know, gets, gets to the heart of the movie. Um, and I think, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, like I said, it, it was, it was a ch- more challenging role for him. Uh, and it's nice to see him take it seriously in a movie that, um, you know, he might not otherwise, uh, do it's, it's not the kind of, as much as it's not the kind of role we're used to seeing him doing, it's also not really this kind of movie we're used to seeing him doing, uh, something as, as sort of, uh, artsy i guess you would say and and heady and thoughtful as ad astor is but it's a nice performance yes nothing like an art house film with an 80 to 100 million dollar budget but it i mean it kind of is though
0: like it's not all about the. oh no i i agree i just i'm amazed that that someone gave James Gray $100 know, yeah. million dollars to make this movie. I mean, I'm, I'm in love that they did. Thank God for Fox, because Disney probably wouldn't ever do that. But uh, it, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if they do something like that in the future. But yeah, no, T- Tom Lee Jones, definitely a worthy person. I think that he would also be my pick. But to, to be different, to give us someone else to talk about, another old white guy who I did really like in this movie is Donald Sutherland. I think that, you know, I expected that to be a character that we saw for a uh, more significant amount of time than we did. But uh, his his path and Brad Pitt's path part ways uh, sooner than I expected uh, in the movie, but he is uh, along for the ride and in, in, in some key ways that I uh, really appreciate. Again, not uh, again, all these supporting performances are, are very are very supporting. I should say they they you really don't get them for too much time on screen, but I enjoyed the time that I had with them, and I, I I'm starting to finally get to a point where I don't mix mix him and was it James Cromwell up, so I can I'm actually differentiating the two the two of them now and can recognize who is who on screen. But uh, I think that the, his role in the movie was an interesting one and it took me a, a while. I think to come to terms with, you know, this is another in, in the grander picture of the movie, you have all these different people who you encounter in space and they all have different reasons for being there. And I think that one of the ones that I didn't immediately appreciate, but have thought more about and appreciated more is why Donald Sutherland was in space and Brad Pitt, you know, point blank asks, you know, basically just asks him, like, why he's doing what he's doing. And you don't really – I don't. you don't really feel like you get the full answer, but this is another person who's out there for very specific reasons looking for very specific things or maybe not looking for very specific things. And I think it really added a lot to the overall narrative of the movie when you put it together with, you know, why Brad Pitt is in space, why uh, Tommy Lee Jones' character is in space, why Ruth Negus' character is in space, why all these people are doing the things that they're doing. And I thought it was really additive to the overall story.
1: Yeah, uh, I I agree.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things, one of the last things I want to say about the supporting cast before we do move on, you you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you one of the disappointments that you had was that Liv Tyler, uh, Liv Tyler's character felt a little bit uh, half baked, or you wanted something something more from it. And I would go a step further and say that uh, I I felt the same about Ruth Nega's character. or, Or you know, even though we do get a little bit more development and a little bit more. Um, I guess uh, fleshed out nature of what exactly her role is in, in the grand scheme of things. I think I was a little bit unsatisfied with that as well. So as much as I appreciated some of the additions of the supporting cast between Tommy Lee Jones, Donald Sutherland uh, I I was really let down by Liv Tyler and, and Ruth Naga and they, and they all have their role to play uh, both being, albeit very minor. Uh, but I think that with wanting more from between wanting more from Liv Tyler and actually not necessarily understanding or, or really getting ruth nega's character uh, those are probably the two weaker one of the one of the uh, together is one of the weaker one of the weakest points of the movie for me as well
1: yeah i mean it, it's just a, a consequence of having a movie that focuses so soul one character and on this mm-hmm. character in his solitude i think ne- necessarily some of the supporting performances are gonna fall by the wayside but it is disappointing when you have a supporting cast this capable yeah for sure for sure it, it just made me wonder at some point like
0: Beside besides just to move the plot along, what was the point of Ruth Nega's character in particular? Because I, I just don't think you know I just don't think it was it, it really contributed to the overall meta narrative that was happening around why people why certain people are in space. I mean, yes, ostensibly like on paper I can describe to you how it, like what exactly her role was and everything, but uh, her story to me just didn't check out. But don't want to dwell on that too much longer because it wasn't that much of a negative in the grand scheme of things. And why don't we move on to something that I think that we'll both agree was not a negative, and that was some of the action scenes in the movie this i you know i called this a sci-fi action epic at the beginning and i stand by it i i, I do think that th- it is not your typical action movie but this is still an action movie there are some action set pieces in this film that you know i imagine to your average viewer and maybe the people who were sitting behind you in your theater were underwhelming but from my perspective where i sat in the theater i just thought they were freaking awesome there's you know one scene uh, where they are traversing the moon to go to the dark side of the moon that has one of my favorite scenes of the year one of my favorite action scenes of the year Uh, And then there are some action scenes later, you know, uh, in space, you have not necessarily any space fights, but uh, there are some some conflicts between uh, humans, between humans and also humans and other things that uh, they definitely get the pulse racing, I would say. And so, Scott, what did you think of these action scenes?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a sort of almost Mad Max esque moon rover chase scene on uh the boon that like is just spectacular i think um it kind of comes out of nowhere right because the rest of the movie is like we've been talking about so uh much more introspective um but it's a nice change of pace for you know the few minutes that uh we see it on screen there's you know some uh, gun play as well in the in the scene and some explosions and stuff uh it's it's an interesting scene again to ex- include in this type of a movie, uh, but it's a type of action scene that we've never really seen we've never really seen like a moon rover in a movie before um and so I'm always down to see you know be, because so many so many so many types of action movies have been made uh, there's not a ton of ways to sort of reinvent the wheel uh, anymore, but with this scene and so I'm always down <laughs> uh, to see that and then there's the... I really like the the other major action sequence, which involves these sort of uh, space monkeys uh, that are like uh, feral. Um, And it, first of all, the way the scene is shot when Brad Pitt first uh, discovers what exactly it is that uh, is, you know, has gone wrong inside this other uh, ship um, is very well shot and a very freaky scene. And, I like the way that this scene in general dives into sort of the horror elements, uh, which again, not something you expected to see in this movie and isn't necessarily uh, on the same level as the rest of the movie. Like it's, it's definitely, there's definitely a bit of asynchronousness, um, but I still think it works. I think uh, the, the technical um, skill with which these scenes are rendered, um, you know, makes them very effective in the end.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and I'll actually go a different direction from what you did. As I, I don't think it's asynchronous at all with with this movie because I think so much of this movie is about telling you how much it just sucks to go to space. And I think to then that's add true. in some, some like horror elements and some and thriller elements and suspense to it what you're already getting in the in the overarching drama that's being laid out in front of you, I think it it fit well with the fact that, you know, you have you have Brad Pitt, who's, you know, really suffering in his trip through space. And then you have this new hell that you, you walk into when you're trying to do this good thing and and, you know, rescue or help this uh, spaceship that is you know sending a distress signal. And then when you realize what happens, you, you know, the, the stuff that he has to go through, it's not a, it's not a super long scene, but it's able to ratchet up that tension in a different way than the rest of the movie does. And so in that sense, it is different from the rest of the movie. But, you know, again, to go back to my adage on this episode of being very additive to the overall story that's being told, I really felt like it fit in with the rest of it and and really kind of complemented the horror that was happening. If you, if you think about from like an Apocalypse Now perspective and that story and Heart of Darkness of uh, this descent into madness as you go further, like deeper into space, uh, you have this, you know, kind of offshoot of the overarching narrative that's, you know, very, very suspenseful, very horror really again ratchets up that tension and, and makes you wonder all right what what exactly is Brad Pitt going to find on this spaceship what's gone wrong uh and and in that way I really appreciated it
1: yeah no I, I I I do agree with you honestly with that point that much like a lot of space movies we've seen in recent years uh this movie does not have the most romantic view of space uh and so I think that particularly the monkey scene definitely uh adds to uh that eerie and uh disturbing feel that they are trying to bring uh to the realm of outer space throughout the movie
0: yeah and then you know to to go back quickly to the moon the moon scene i think that that is what i was looking to is is one of the coolest scenes i've seen all year and i texted you after i saw the movie and said no i think this might be my favorite action scene of the year bar none that's including anything out of endgame uh obviously endgame had a very different effect on me uh uh, Than this action sequence did, and then the action sequence is in Endgame. But for me, you know, you talk about reinventing the wheel. I mean, we talked last year extensively about, you know, Mission Impossible Fallout's constant, or Mission Impossible franchise's mission is constantly to try and find some new way to wow you from an action perspective. And this movie, Again, I am calling it action movie, and I stand by it. But this movie, not being the kind of same kind of action movie that Mission Impossible is, manages to find that way with the moon rover scene. And you know, I didn't necessarily think of it as a comparison to Mad Max, but I really love that comparison because it's true. It's this you know very kind of like wide angle uh, perspective, on, and you see these uh, you know you see the rovers kind of converging on e- each other as as the pirates essentially try to uh, take down these other rovers and and you know steal stuff that's valuable off of them. And then what you get instead is this very beautifully shot sequence where they also do incredible work with the audio design of that scene as well, where it's it's shot as if the camera is just out there in space and you basically can't hear anything that's happening. And so you get this contrast of like this quite silent chase scene where all of a sudden they either fire a rocket or a gun. I'm not sure what it is. And you get this massive explosion happen on screen. that's not very loud, but it's very jarring to all of a sudden have this massive explosion in front of you and i just think it's wonderfully shot is it a bit convenient where you know that, that brad pitt and, and donald sutherland's rover gets like rocketed off this canyon and they just drive right on yeah. off away very convenient uh i thought it was hilarious and kind of laughed chuckled to myself about how conveniently that ended up uh ending when you know everyone else around them had died and uh including the person who was originally driving their rover but it was a pretty pretty awesome scene and it didn't overstay its welcome like most of the scenes in this movie uh they're designed in a way where uh they accomplish what they set out to do and they don't overstay their welcome and
1: yeah some of the science definitely questionable at multiple parts in this movie uh but i was along for the ride at that point
0: yeah i mean with space movies you kind of you kind of have to assume that some some leeway must be taken because some y- y- we just don't know everything about space. Period, right? I mean, sure. Interstellar. I know you haven't seen it. takes takes too much leeway, in my opinion, with the direction that that Chris Nolan takes with with certain aspects of uh, space and quantum theory that no one understands and says, "Well, if no one understands it, I'm just going to put my own spin on it." Uh, this movie is a little bit more subtle, probably with with what it's doing. Uh, in some ways, maybe not. Maybe maybe towards the end, it gets a little out of control. But overall, I think it. It, it it doesn't get lost under the weight of it, of the assumptions it's making
1: yeah i agree
0: all right scott you know we we talked a little bit about this point already but it's i think one of the most fascinating things for us to talk about and that is the the theme uh, of space travel and solitude and the toll that space travel takes on people you just talked about I mean, a couple movies more recently are are take a perspective on space travel that isn't as gratifying as maybe you know movies like you know of the, of the flavor of Star Wars or other space operas have taken the pass and kind of, if not glorifying it, then make trying to make it sexy, right? You know, first man last year really had a production design that lent itself to just showing you how batshit crazy it was to go to space and launching your, you know, get climbing into a rocket and launching yourself out there at the same time. I would still argue that first man is a movie that glorifies going to space as crazy and psycho as it, as it seems to be getting there. Uh, the, the majesty of getting to the moon is certainly on display. And, and the entire point of the movie is that you know space is this release for Neil Armstrong to overcome the loss of his daughter. Uh, space is not that in this movie. And I think this is more so than any other movie that I've ever seen. This movie really shows you, and to, to use a phrase that I've already started to use earlier, the, the horror of traveling through space, not just from a perspective of you know climbing into a rocket and shooting yourself to the moon and beyond, but from a perspective of the toll that solitude and space in general has on you. So Scott, what did, what did you think of this particular theme in, in in the film to me, I, as you probably can guess already, it's one of my favorites from the, the the way that James Gray goes about exploring.
1: Yeah, no, I think that this movie is more authentic just because, um, again, of the emotional element. And I think the way that, you know, it's talking about space and saying space, it doesn't romanticize space, but it's not just showing us that, uh, with, you know, visuals and like the, you know, the action sequences that we've been talking about, but, um, it shows the emotional wear that space has on a person or, uh, you know, I, as we've talked about sort of that dynamic of, uh, did space do this or was the person already like this was it co- a combination of both. Um, and we see how space sort of represents, um, sort of that, uh, you know, that unattainable thing, uh, you know, like in in sort of the lost city of Z, right, which is another exploration movie. Um, again, I haven't seen the film, but I know enough about the story where, it, you know, it's about a man who's trying to, you know, uncover this this lost city and um, ultimately ends up uh, disappearing literally and and, uh, you know, physically and Uh, mentally, emotionally. Um, and I think this is, uh, you know, the same thing, like the space is portrayed as sort of this great white whale, this Moby Dick type figure, um, for, uh, you know, the, not, not only Brad Pitt's character, but for his father's character as well. Um, and they pursue what they believe space will hold, um, in, you know, in lieu of everything else that they have in their lives on earth. Um, And, you know, it, it, ends up, uh, you know, the, the, the promise of space and, uh, the, the promise of, uh, the immeasurable realm of space, uh, ends up not being fulfilled. Um, and I think the movie does a great job of portraying that, um, you know, with the, the dynamic between, uh, these two characters, uh, Brad Pitt and his father, and ultimately gives Brad Pitt a choice to make, you know, is he going to follow in his father's footsteps? Um, and lose himself, to, you know, lose what he has in the real world to space as well? Uh, or is he going to try to forage a new path and, um, you know, determine that something else is what's really important to him in life? And uh, I think there's an interesting comment commentary on masculinity as well there, uh, but maybe that's a little bit, uh, you know, asynchronous to what you're asking about.
0: No, I think this is a natural segue in talking about lots of – lots of not lots of, like all the themes of this movie, right? And I think that what you see in terms of the horrors of space you – know, I referenced Heart of Darkness earlier, and there's been a lot of comparisons that I've seen on the internet of this movie to Heart of Darkness, at least the trajectory of it. I, I see it to some extent for sure, um, but for me personally, I, I do think this movie ultimately tells uh, a more new – that's crazy to say, right? Cause it's one of, one of the you know best, best books of all time, of course, or is thought is widely regarded as a very, very good story and very, very yeah. good novel. Uh, but I, I think that this, it, it does take inspiration maybe, and, and you can see the trajectory of this descent into madness. And, you know, if, if in heart of darkness, you know, the jungle and, and, uh, in central Africa is, is this thing that can, just drive you mad. The solitude that it forces you into, and the, and the ways it makes you confront yourself, can drive you crazy. Space can do that too. And then, if that is a natural seg, so I guess first off, before I segue into the next part of what I want to talk about, which then maybe can segue into what you want to talk about with masculinity, I think first I so much appreciated this movie about never pulling its punches with regards to just how miserable space travel is. Right? Like, you know, I don't need to go back over it. But I think even in these movies that have tried to show you a more authentic, uh, experience of what it meant to like go into space. Uh, I, I think that this movie doesn't, doesn't, doesn't leave anything to be questions around like, Oh, you know what? Maybe it was hell to get here, but wow, the reward was amazing. I think this movie never gives you a reward for going to space. And, uh, then that next Oh, go ahead. Yep.
1: Yeah, I was just saying and the vision of space that it presents is really interesting, too. And I think they definitely try to modernize it in an interesting way. Like, you know, we've seen some like technological proposals, at least in recent years about, uh, you know, like what Elon Musk is doing with all this sort of uh hyper rail or whatever that thing it is sure. that he had pitched. But, um, you know, th- that makes it seem like, pl- you know, we could plausibly see, uh, some for some form of commercialized space travel, yeah. um, you know, in the next century. And I think this movie, uh, presents a vision of space that, uh, is, you know, probably not that dissimilar to what we could see. You know, there's the freaking like Subway and Applebee's in space that we see. And there's, uh, you know, just sort of the crass commercialism that we see um, in the other forms of mass transportation, you know, that we have um, today, whether it's airplanes or uh, trains or any of that. Um, and so I, I thought that was uh, a really interesting and, and uh, cool take on uh, what, the, the kind of space travel that we could see in the future um, and not something that we have necessarily seen in other recent space movies.
0: Yeah. And I think it makes an interesting, if brief statement about like the idea that it's, it's funny that humans have gone to space to find something new. And then all you do is just create the same, the same problems in the same culture in the same world that, that, you know, you could argue that some people are running away from when they go to space. And I think that that segues nicely into the point that I wanted to make. And I think that is the main theme of the movie right is like why do people go to space what is it about them that drives them to go to space or does or does space have a a certain effect on everyone who goes there Uh, yes it's probably somewhere in the middle but i really loved the argument and was really convinced and found it really compelling the argument that space doesn't necessarily at least not on its own make you emotionally withdrawn and and make you you know essentially disappear from the life that you knew on earth. It's it's a particular kind of person that wants to go to space. And I think this movie sets up a very convincing argument for it's people who are running away from themselves and running maybe away from, from the world who go to space. It's not that they necessarily expect to find something uh, new out there, but they're so disillusioned with themselves and their, and the world that they're, that they live in currently that they literally go and try to find another world. I mean, it's, it's what Clifford McBride is doing out there at the Lima project around Neptune is that he's trying to find the answer that or, or find, find evidence that humans are not alone in the world because he is so disillusioned with humanity. I mean, we're getting kind of into full spoilers here. So I want to go ahead and say that now before I talk a little bit more about Clifford McBride's character, but uh, so full spoilers now going into it. I think that one of the most fascinating things about this movie is when you, you, I think that happens. It starts to happen about halfway, but you realize, like the real, uh, I guess, the 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 full implications of what's happening between Spacecom and McBride, and and maybe there we can talk about whether or not that's a satisfying ending to the particular narrative story itself that it's telling. But I find it so fascinating that you know you have this person who point blank in a conversation with Brad Pitt's character says, "I never loved you. I never loved your mom. I never loved anything about humanity. I came out here to to find something that I could love because." this this world can't be it because it's so dissatisfying and you know at the same time you have this juxtaposed right next to brad pitt's character who has gone across the galaxy to find resolution with his dad because he cannot move on in life he cannot find you know solace with anything in the world that he knows until he comes to terms with his father abandoning him and his mother you know whatever it like was, 20, whatever, 26, 27 years, whatever it was before, and, you know, leaving them alone. And what he finds out there is exactly what he already knew about his father, told to his face about the fact that his father never loved him, and that, yes, his father left Earth because he wasn't satisfied with the life that he had there. And two, that there is no evidence of, of extraterrestrial intelligent life, and you know, he then goes back to Earth at the end of the movie, propelled by a nuclear bomb, which I, the, the science behind <laughs> that is the point that lost me a little bit yeah. in, the, in the film. Uh, I don't know why that was necessary, but, it, you know, he goes back to Earth with that notion, and then he's able to start his life, like, 30 years later. Like, it's it's those answers that he found in space, not not necessarily the answers he thought he would find, but the answers that he found out there allowed him to return to Earth and actually start this life that he had ostensibly been living for 30 years and the relationships that he'd attempted to start but were unable to because he was so disillusioned with everything around him.
1: You know, to to talk what I to to, to I think this plays into what I was saying yeah. about um sort of the masculinity angle is that um you know there's th- there is this whole thing about he's becoming his father, right? And we learn that um that Tommy Lee Jones uh has actually killed his crew. I mean, I guess we're deep into spoilers territory at this point. But um that, that Tommy Lee Jones, you know, killed the crew that he was on the, the ship with and has, you know, that's why he's been stranded out there by himself. And then Brad Pitt, like in almost the next scene, kind of ends up having to do, you know, being forced into the same situation when he stows away on the ship, right, to try and uh, get over to the Lima project. Uh, and the crew does not react well to it uh, and he has to kill them. And so, you know, all all along, he is, you know, sort of following in his father's footsteps as much as he uh, may try not to. It's almost a sort of Shakespearean um, dilemma. Uh, And it's all building towards that choice that he's to make at the end. But also, you know, the idea of just like the binary uh, of, you know, what the father is supposed to do in the family is, you know, he's supposed to to go to work. And uh, it's the you know, it's the mother's job to actually care for the family. It's the father's job to, uh, you know go, go out and, and do work. And so that the family can have, you know, financial support. And, you know, this movie obviously looks at that in an extreme way to the extent that, uh, you know, the father is actually going to space, leaving the family behind, um, you know, in, in the pursuit of ambition. Um, but I think that still, uh, you know, the, the, the movie makes its point And, uh, I think comes down on the right side of what is really important, uh, Right, and that is uh, you know the relationships, uh, and and I you know I was satisfied with the fact that uh, Brad Pitt eventually does figure this out. Um, I, I wasn't sure where the movie was going in terms of uh, you know ha- what was the choice that he was going to make ultimately, uh, because I I could have seen it going either way, but ultimately I was satisfied with how it ended up, and I think the final monologue that he has really it, it's it you know it's almost corny in the way that uh there is this sort of heart on the sleeve emotion but again i think it works because um you know again that internal monologue is set up as that's what it is it's just his pure like raw unfiltered uncensored emotion um and at the end of the movie he finally like you know is able to fully access that to fully get in touch with that and Uh, to be that type of person. And so uh, it worked for me. And uh, it was a really lovely way to end the movie, even if those guys behind me weren't that satisfied with it. Yeah. You know, I talk about wanting more from
0: Liv Tyler, and I thought that we might get a little bit more at the end. We unfortunately don't. That's okay. That was part of the story. But uh, yeah, the final scene, the climactic scene when he does finally come face to face with his father, I didn't know what was going to happen either. I didn't know which way he was going to he was going to land, but you know, he ultimately, you know, fulfills his duty. He completes his mission. He blows it up. And, and I yeah. thought one of the, one of the super interesting parts of the narrative, which I didn't expect, which kind of just, I think because of the nature of how many different things it's exploring and the way that it's exploring, it kind of, in some ways can just kind of wash over you and not really process it is that yes, you know, Tommy Lee Jones Clifford McBride does all these horrible things. He kills his crew, uh, you know, cause they had, you know, lost faith in the mission and wanted to go home. Uh, but you know, when you get out there, the whole point of this is that you know Spacecom believes that this guy is firing antimatter uh, like blasts at, at the solar system and trying to destroy it, but he's not in fact doing that, and he's trying to prevent it from yeah. happening. Uh, so I think that there's it it also adds an additional layer of nuance. This doesn't particularly tie into any of the conversations we were having before this, but one of the things that I appreciate about the story is that it, you know even though his you know Roy's father is not this is not the hero he had been. You know, you know, described as for so many years to both him and the rest of the world. He's also not entirely the monster painted uh, either. He's somewhere in the middle. He did this horrible thing because uh, of his obsession with trying to find alien intelligent life. At the same time, he's also not trying to literally destroy the universe, uh, but it was yeah. a byproduct of this horrible thing that he did do uh, during this mutiny. Uh, the, the, the antimatter reactions were set off in a way that uh, could not be stopped.
1: Yeah. And, you know, to circle back to to what you were talking about in the, the scene between the two of them, I think it's telling still that even after Tommy Lee Jones, um, you know, tells him, I, I didn't love you and I came here to get away from you. Uh, basically, you know, Brad Pitt still tries to get him home, right? Like he can't he can't stop caring. Yeah. Uh, and he has to you know, we have to get to this moment where he literally watches his father die and uh space. And I think I, I love the way that that's another, you know, that's another scene where I love the way that it's shot. And the way that uh you know you see Tommy Lee Jones floating away and at first you see like uh Brad Pitt's helmet is like shrouded by a shadow. And then for a moment, like as he turns, uh we see inside the helmet and we see like his anguished expression. And then you know the shadow comes back. Um really, you know, beautifully the way that, that was shot. But you know he has to see that uh, in order to to realize what it is that he needs to do um, even if uh, science uh, helps him out a lot in the end
0: yeah they do a lot of really cool things i think
1: with lighting uh inside those helmets over the totally. course of the
0: film and that is definitely a great a great example of that and i think that I think that probably wraps us up here. We can probably enter our, our wrap-up phase. I will say there is one final action scene I guess worth just mentioning, and it's right after the scene that you're describing, where he uses a, a piece of the of the Lima Project ship to propel his way uh, through an essentially the one of the rings of Neptune uh, uses it as a shield to deflect the debris, which I just thought was. That was actually even more so than the nuclear, the nuclear blast. Like if you think about the way space and physics actually works, if he's like propelling himself through asteroids and needs to deflect them, uh, each, you know, each reaction has an equal and opposite reaction. So I don't quite know how he managed to actually make his way through that, uh, through the ring, through that kind of debris field. But you know what? All in the name of a good story. So.
1: Yeah, it's wild, but uh, I went along with it, and uh, I hope that everyone will, too. Yeah, it's hard It's hard not to, I
0: think. Uh, well,
1: maybe that's just me. But <laughs> yeah. uh, some people probably
0: won't go along with it, but
1: whatever. 40% of audiences agree with you.
0: <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly the 40% I want to be a part of. All right. <laughs> we are the 40%. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Scott,
1: what was your favorite scene from Ad Astra? Uh, I mean, we've talked about a lot of them. I will. I do want to highlight. I think the opening is really good of the movie, where uh, Brad Pitt is up on this space station, right, and the uh, you know surge thing happens, and he sort of like falls to Earth. Uh, it's that's a really uh, well shot scene, and I uh, I liked. Uh, you know, it started it starts with a bang for sure.
0: Yeah, in in many ways, it remind it, a different kind of scene. It's a different type of travel, but very reminiscent of that opening scene from First Man as well, where you have this really claustrophobic uh, scene of You know, Ryan Gosling's Neil Armstrong getting, you know, doing a test. I think was it a test mission or was it a real one? I can't remember, but it it really set the tone for the entire movie. And I think that this opening scene in in a similar way sets the tone for the type of experience that being in space uh, has or is. Absolutely. Yeah. I think my favorite scene has to be the moon rover scene. I know we've talked about it already, but it's just such an amazing scene, especially when, you know, again, I have said this so many times, but I still I stick by my guns that this is an action movie. And, and so it's only fitting that an action sequence is, is one that sticks out the most, especially because I think that, you know, in, in, in many ways, this movie is about a continuous experience and understanding exactly how everything pieces itself together. And so when you have a standout moment like this in terms of from an action perspective, and one of the few moments where you actually get a very discreet scene, uh, as opposed to uh you know an ongoing narrative or internal monologue that you get from Brad, Pitt. I think that it, it stands out both for the quality of the scene itself, the way it's shot, the audio design, like I mentioned, uh, but then also the fact the way it's different from a, from the vast majority of the scenes in the movie. All right, Scott, let's put a score on it. What are you giving Ad Astra?
1: Man, this is tough. Uh, I, you know, there are a couple of flaws that I pointed out. I think some things are are uh, you know a little bit undercooked. But, uh, I mean, this is one of the best movies of the year, 9.5. All right, 9.5. It's a great score. In many ways, Scott, This is a,
0: it's a movie that I think it's better than this movie. But just, just to quickly preface my score, it's a movie that I think re- reminded me a lot of Annihilation. And it's like sci-fi, kind of artsy, trying to do different things, yeah. exploring a message that doesn't make sense. I think it's a better story and it comes together slightly better than Annihilation. But I gave Annihilation an 8.5. Or somewhere around there, and I believe this movie is all all of annihilation and a little bit more, which is why I'm coming out at a 9.0. All right, Scott, that should do it for our discussion of Ad Astra. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing the past week's news and trailer drops. We actually have a few trailers this week, unlike last week, so we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, quickly to just go ahead and jump right into the news from this week. Uh, what we learned, well, I guess it was shortly before we recorded last time, but we didn't talk about it, and that is MoviePass. Uh, the, the, the grand story of MoviePass that is dated back for probably about two years. I mean, it really jumped onto the scene kind of early 2018, right about the time we started recording this podcast. Uh, for its very cheap subscription service to movies, it really pioneered that, uh, certainly we benefited from it pioneering uh, and and really convincing or persuading or uh, inspiring AMC to have their A-list uh, offering, which allows us to see a lot of movies for relatively uh, l- less money than if we just saw them and paid for each movie. But you know, MoviePass it had its problems. Uh, it definitely had its business issues and definitely did some deceptive things that made it probably a not very good company to be a subscriber to. But it is officially dead. They have closed the doors. They have shut down service completely, at least as of right now. And It doesn't seem like it's going to be coming back because I don't think anyone can will invest in it at this point. But Scott, is, is this death knell for MoviePass? Is this a good thing, a bad thing?
1: Any sort of uh, eulogy for it? I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. I think it probably is a good thing from uh, a business standpoint, a consumer standpoint. People weren't really getting anything out of this anymore. Um, but I think it's... I, I, look, I will look back on MoviePass with somewhat fondness because I think that, uh, well, they produced Gotti, you know, the best movie of 2018. No, I'm kidding. But, um, I think, I think that, uh, it started the whole sort of, uh, you know, subscription, uh, model for movie tickets that, um, is the reason we can do this podcast, right? Because of the AMC Stubbs plan. Um, you know, who knows whether that, um, you know, would have come about if not for, uh, movie past and the way that movie pass took off. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, obviously their, their model wasn't sustainable. They, they probably underestimated the amount of movies that, uh, people would, uh, go to when it only cost them $10 a month, you know, in that initial run. But, you know, I had movie pass during the good, good phase. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and like I said, I think bigger and better things have spawned because of movie pass. Uh, and so sometimes you have to in, in the initial stages of an idea like this, you have to go over some in order to get movie passes one, one of the bumps, But uh, the industry is better for having it, having had had it for the time period that it was around.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show that it's not always the best thing to be the first person to a new trend, right? And you know, they weren't probably positioned in the right way to be able to capitalize uh, and, and run a sustainable business, like of course AMC has been able to do, being you know a movie theater company themselves. And and unfortunately, the business, the I guess the the method of doing business where you essentially just pay for all the movie t- you have a negotiated rate for the movie tickets on the back end wasn't wasn't successful. Ultimately, when you know you still had people essentially paying less than what it was costing you as a company to operate and uh, the way that they so invested in that model to get people onto the service without any concrete or foreseeable way of making up that money on the back end besides just you know taking on debt. Uh, it clearly didn't, didn't work too well for them, but I can take my business hat off. We've probably said enough, but it, it definitely spawned bigger and better things to your point and it certainly has allowed me to see Far more movies than I otherwise would be able to. Maybe maybe we'd be able to do this podcast. Maybe we wouldn't. I don't know. Uh, but it certainly has expanded our ability to see more movies, even beyond the ones that we cover here on the podcast, for sure. So I have to thank it for that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, Scott. Switching gears to a different kind of uh, business announcement, and that is NBC Universal's uh, streaming platform. We did get a name. This is going to be a platform that starts, I believe, early next year in 2020. Uh, and it's going. It's it has easily what I would think is the worst streaming service name that I've come across so far, and that is simply Peacock. Scott, I, I think, like I mentioned, this is coming out April. This is launching April 2020 of next year. And one, two of its big things that it will be coming uh, coming to market with is a Saved by the Bell revival and a Battlestar Galactica reboot. I don't know if either of these things, in particular, get you excited, or if this name gets you excited. But now's your time to say if it does.
1: Okay, uh, I have to say that uh, by the best, huge part of my my child, he used to watch it every single morning before I went to school on TBS. That being said, I did tweet the other day that there were only a couple episodes that I could remember, and I think that's still true. I'm not really sure what this show is going to be. I think. Uh, I have a lot of skepticism about it because, you know, Full House, a similar type sitcom, albeit from the 90s, not the 80s, but, um, you know, came back in Fuller House and it wasn't very good. You know, now that these characters are much older, um, I'm just not sure where this series can really go. And I I somehow doubt that Dustin Diamond as Screech is going to be back. Um, I think he might even be like in jail or something, or he was at one point. None of these actors have really done much. I don't have good feelings about the quality of this, but. Who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe it will surprise me. But I, I think people will at least give it a chance um, on this new streaming service.
0: Yeah, I, you know, this is—we're we're starting to see a saturation in the streaming market. I mean, it, it hasn't happened yet, but the prospect of it is looming large. About, you know, if you have X amount of money to spend on streaming services every month, where are you going to spend your money, right? And I, I think that there is definitely a compelling argument to say that you know some of the content going to Peacock is going to be compelling for some people, but uh, I just wonder about which streaming services will win out as the go-tos and which ones will become, you know, the second or the third choice. And I wonder if if Peacock will be the first choice for anyone. Now, that doesn't mean that it won't create a sustainable business model for NBC Universal as a streaming service, but I just wonder if if this one will be a winner with the limited amount of content that it's currently um, going going to be having. Like I'm sure that is it the Office. Uh, yeah. So j- just confirming, yes, the office, the office probably will whenever its deal with Netflix expires, we'll be going over to NBC Universal, which will certainly help out its uh, its subscription numbers. Because, you know, like people who only subscribe to Netflix for friends, I know people who only subscribe to Netflix for The Office just to have it on in the background. Uh, I rewatch
1: know. the same episodes 25 times. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, there are people out there that do it good for them. So that will help their subscriber base. But, you know, at some point I wonder You know what what will be the limit for for streaming services because you know what you know there's not enough i mean maybe i'm wrong about this but i don't think people are going to be willing to spend money you know not everyone's going to want to buy nbc universal for or buy peacock for the office not everyone's going to want to buy hbo max for friends or wherever that one's going to land i can't remember which one that one is going to land on like not everyone's going to you know shell out for netflix's original content and it you know and um Disney plus original content like like some, something's something's got to give somewhere and I wonder if uh, or I should say I imagine Peacock might be the weakest link there because HBO has their outstanding original content Disney plus is going to have that outstanding original content and everyone knows uh, what Netflix has to offer already so I just wonder how deep the pockets can go for some of these streaming services
1: yeah I, I think you're probably right about that and you know I- I, I am certainly someone who comes down in uh, the camp of I would much rather see this original content supported um, than I would, you know, people watching the same shows over and over again.
0: Sure. And, you know, as much as as much as we are seeing right now, the great unbundling, as some have called it, of of streaming service packages and content going into their respective studios. Uh, at some point, I'm sure we will see a rebundling. Uh, it'll just be a matter of time for how long that takes. All right. Moving on to our next news item here uh we we did learn this i guess again maybe this wasn't a this week news story but we learned a few more details uh we already knew that Haley atwell was going to be joining the mission impossible franchise for at least the next movie but we we have uh this has been confirmed that she will be joining both of the uh, both of the mission impossible movies the next two ones that are being shot back to back and released in consecutive years and she's described this role as she is the female lead which uh you know is not surprising. It's Haley Atwell. She's you know a, a, a movie star to the extent that she can definitely be the female lead uh, in a Mission Impossible movie. But the question that this really spawned for me, Scott, and I wonder if you're already thinking this before I ask it is, what does this mean for Rebecca Ferguson's character? Uh,
1: I hope it doesn't spell doom because, you, Scott, you know I'm a huge... Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think that Rogue Nation is still in the role that Ilsa Faust and Rebecca Ferguson plays in that movie. I think it could somehow find a way... To get Haley Atwell and Rebecca Ferguson and Vanessa Kirby all in and not diminish any of their roles to uh, such an extent that it feels like they're just a bit player, uh, then that would be awesome. Tom Cruise might actually be getting his thunder stolen a bit if if all of those uh, ladies were around. But yeah, you know H- Haley Atwell is is a talented actress. She's shown she's has action chops, um, uh, playing uh, as Peggy Carter uh, on the TV series and in the MCU, of course. And so I, I think she she would be a solid choice for this, but uh, I'm definitely Team Ferguson if it comes down to you know between the two of them. Yeah,
0: I think we'll, we'll have to see. I wait, has, it, do we know that Vanessa Kirby is going to be in the oh, next I two don't movies? Think we do. Oh, okay, yeah, because I, I I would be I would actually but be kind of surprised if she was.
1: I, I would too, but it was left in the air. Like I, her character didn't die or anything. So sure, I mean that that's definitely true. Yeah, I mean that's a good point. Anyway, yeah, no, I think that
0: it was really interesting. I, Again, this could just be, they could both be female leads, right? Like there doesn't have to be only one female lead. But I was, uh, my eyebrows were raised a little bit because I think that people, you know, not just you, like Ilsa Faust as a character, like what Rebecca Ferguson is doing with that character in the movie. Uh, so I, I would be a little bit surprised if she then got left. And-
1: okay. Oh, go Sorry to jump in. I was just thinking, I wonder if maybe this could be like, more of a love interest character than an agent character? I'm not sure. But uh, I, I, I do wonder if either way they will play a romantic angle more into this character because um, in the last movie, we definitely saw uh, him moving past his... Uh, so we, we got some closure sort of for his previous romantic partner, mm-hmm. uh, that being Michelle Monaghan's character, Julia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there never has really been that aspect to the Ilsa Faust relationship. So I wonder if... That's something that Haley Atwell will add. Maybe. I wonder if she's going to be the villain. Interesting. I'd be down for that, too.
0: Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I I, I, I quite liked Henry Cavill uh, as the villain in the last one, but I think it could be interesting uh, if they go a new direction uh, for, the, for the upcoming films. So, I don't know. Uh, we don't have to wait that long, but it still is a long time because it's going to be 2021 and 2022 uh, when these movies come out, assuming Tom Cruise doesn't break any appendages while filming. Uh, so... <laughs> Yeah, big we'll if. keep our we'll keep our fingers. It is a big if. we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed because it is you know still almost two years away. But uh, I will be excited when we, the time does come. Heck yeah, yeah for sure. All right, Scott. Moving on. Joaquin Phoenix, of course, the lead in a movie that is getting a ton of buzz. We talked about it last week for winning the Golden Lion uh, over at the Venice International Film Festival. That is, of course, Joker. We'll be talking about it next month on the podcast. But we learned about something a little bit about his next role and. Uh, Surprise, surprise, it will not be uh, Joker again and certainly probably not a movie of the budget of a film like Joker. It's going to be a movie distributed by A24 and will be directed by Mike Mills. Uh, Not too much more detail happening right now. But what we know that Joaquin Phoenix, uh, per his usual, is keeping the variety of movies that he's doing at, you know, at a large, uh, I guess, a large span. Because, you know, you go from something like Joker, you know, one of the most iconic villains of all time maybe giving a performance that will end up with an Oscar nomination or even a win. Maybe we'll see. Uh, but then going to something like an A 24 indie distributed movie, Scott, uh, wh- wh- what does this do for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, not much detail as you said, Scott, but uh, I don't need any more detail. I'm in. Uh, Joaquin is one of my favorite actors. Um, a 24. Obviously we- we've talked about them being an NBB studio, right? A nothing but bangers uh, in terms <laughs> of what they're producing. Um And you throw Mike Mills on top of it, whose last movie uh, was an A24 production that I dearly love called 20th Century Women. Uh, It was in my top 20 of the decade when we did that episode uh, a few weeks ago. Um, And so, yeah, I'm like I said, I don't I don't need any more detail. Um, I'm already there. So uh, I'm excited.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm on board for whatever Joaquin does. I think his his range is incredible. I may not have been the biggest fan of you were never really here last year uh but it it was still a fantastic performance from him. and you know if I had to point to some of my favorite movies of all time, maybe he's not breaking into the none of his movies are breaking into the top three or four that I might have that that might be on that list, but he certainly has a uh, a, a strong presence in the in the wider uh, experience of movies that I have, whether it's you know, something like Gladiator back, you know, at the beginning of the of the century or uh, more recently with Spike, with Spike Jones, uh, her, and, and movies like that, and then I'm sure Joker—you know, love it, love it or hate it—I'm sure his performance uh, will be very impactful. Yeah, it's going to be something to behold. Yes, I'm sure. All right, Scott, uh, going from indie films to what I imagine will be a, a slightly bigger budget, but maybe not. Who the hell knows with this franchise? Uh, we know that Legendary is going to be doing a Halloween-esque sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise with Fede Alvarez producing, not directing. It's uh, apparently not going to be a a vehicle for him to ultimately direct this movie, which I think is probably a bad decision. But then again, he also did Girl in the Spider's Web last year, which wasn't all that good. Uh, But Scott, obviously this isn't surprising given the success of the Halloween sequel from last year. But do you think this is going to be a way that they can – revive uh, you know i hate to say nascent because they've made so many attempts to to make sequels or reboots or whatever the hell they're doing with the texas chainsaw massacre franchise uh do you think that this is a way that they will be able to successfully revive this franchise
1: we will see uh i think only time will tell i will say like i'm not as big of a texas chainsaw fan as i am a halloween fan i think the actual original texas chainsaw is actually not a very good movie um and With that being said, you know, I I do think like the success of the 2018 Halloween, you know, did get did does give me some hope. I don't know, like if Blumhouse is linked to this at all, but if they are, then that would give me some uh, some hope. And then, you know, Fede Alvarez is a good name to be attached to this. Don't Breathe, one of the best horror movies of the decade. Uh, And also, you know, he did that Evil Dead remake, um, which I never saw. But a lot of people really enjoyed that movie, including, you know, big Evil Dead fans. Um, and so he's shown that he can take a horror franchise that people, uh, are big fans of and make, make a modern reboot, uh, that is faithful and appeals to, you know, all of those fans. So, uh, we, we will see what happens in the future with this one, but, uh, you know, I'm intrigued if not, uh, particularly excited at this stage.
0: Yeah. You know, I haven't seen any of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies, so I can't speak to the quality or, uh, of them in particular, but you know. I think that the fact that this is going to be a direct sequel to the original, sort of retconning, uh, for the most part, what I believe to have been disasters <laughs> of films in the last couple of decades. Maybe I think one of them might be well liked, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But it's also just weird, like why, like yes, attaching Fede Alvarez's name to something like this when they when he has done Don't Breathe and the Evil Dead remake, it is exciting. But if he's not directing it, then you know, it feels weird. Like, what's the point then? Like, yes, he, he's producing it and we'll have some sort of, I assume creative vision that he'll be able to uh, advise on or or whatnot, but he's not the director. I wonder who it'll be then. And and one thing about this franchise in general that I think makes it quite different than Halloween is like, y- yes, you have the iconic slasher in Leatherface and leather uh, face and comparing that to Michael Myers, of course, but you know, you don't, you don't have, you know, the kind of lead central figure that you can go back to, you know, 40 years Later, and so I wonder how this movie would root uh, its story and make it, you know, apparent that it's a, a direct sequel. All of that Halloween uh, sequel last year, Scott. I don't know if you have any thought about that.
1: Yeah, I, I, I really don't know. Um, I, it, We will just have to see with this one. Uh, I, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, because I think you know the fact that you could get Laurie Strode and Michael Myers and have that kind of face off between the two of them. Uh, in the movie. I mean, that's what got so many people excited about the movie yeah. and was one of the really compelling points of the movie. But, like, you don't have a. I don't, I mean, like, yes, there is a central character whose name I don't know and who's a, an actress I don't know either. But I assume, like, there is no Jamie Lee Curtis equivalent that would get people so excited if they returned for this, you know, long gestating reboot sequel, whatever you want to call
1: it. No. And I think everybody gets killed actually. In- chainsaw uh movie so you're right i don't think they have like in some of the sequels they have had like like matthew mcconaughey i think was in one of them uh but whoa, i don't that you're right there's not a beloved character in this franchise in the way that you know laurie strode is but you know it still has name recognition right people might just for for, for the name alone maybe for leatherface is the killer um they, that might get them there
0: yeah maybe who knows only time will tell all right, Scott, I think that will do it for now. We can switch over to our trailers, which are probably the things that we're most excited to talk about in this section. What better place to start than uh, another trailer for Knives Out? Scott, uh, we got just more insight into the feel of this movie, just giving you a really slice of life of the movie, so to speak, to, I don't know, get, it got me more on, on, even more on board, more excited, because everything about this movie just, it feels great.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, we saw, we got a little bit more of the plot in this trailer, but... Uh, you know not not enough at all to where anything would be spoiled and ryan johnson himself even tweeted out and uh, said don't worry there's no spoilers um and especially for this type of movie you don't want any spoilers but uh yeah i i didn't need this trailer to be more excited uh for this movie uh we were already the you know coming into the year this is one of our most anticipated the first trailers were very encouraging and then you know the reviews coming out of tiff and elsewhere have been raved so uh this is you know this is has all the you know parts uh to be one of our favorite movies of the year and uh, i'm just ready to see the movie now to be quite honest
0: yeah and i'm starting to worry about my expectations being too high for the film and you know one of the things that i was thinking about after the trailer came out this past week uh because when i watched it, i was like wow these performances look amazing chris evans looks you know better than ever even in terms of his actual acting performances that he's putting in you know daniel craig looks like it's freaking Daniel Craig. All, you know, all these characters look amazing. And I'm just sitting here wondering, like, will the Academy appreciate this enough to actually be bold enough to, like, give this movie Oscar nominations? Because, you know, Ryan Johnson is doing Ryan Johnson things. <sighs> no. What do you say? I said the answer is usually no to that question. I know. So I'm probably going to end up being pissed. But, you know, I just hope, you know, in the shorter term, I just hope that this movie delivers when I see it because uh, my anticipation couldn't be couldn't be higher for it, which, you know, sometimes doesn't always bode well for the movie.
1: Yeah, that's true. You don't want to hype yourself up too much, but uh, I can't imagine, you know, that I'm going to be that disappointed, even if it's not like a masterpiece that I'm going to be super disappointed when it comes out.
0: Yeah, Ryan Johnson hasn't disappointed me yet, so I will hold on to the fact that I don't think he will now. Me either. All right, Scott, next one was a a movie that I don't even think was on our radar before we saw this trailer come out, uh, and that is Dark Waters starring... Uh, Mark Ruffalo and Anne Hathaway in a supporting role I think that you know this movie it's about uh, essentially this this guy who has been a corporate lawyer for all these you know Ong oil and gas companies for a few years and all of a sudden he's exposed to maybe the the grim reality to this chemical company that is just dumping uh, poison was essentially poison toxins waste into local water supply and what this all this is to set up this really a uh, dark thriller about whether or not you know, this, you know, former corporate lawyer can go and defend the little guy essentially against these massive corporations that, you know, essentially own and run the, the, the local government and their permissions to do the things that they're doing. Uh, Scott, this is a trailer that really captivated me and immediately got me excited for a new movie, a movie that I didn't even know about uh, before this week. Scott, did you feel the same?
1: yeah it i did and you know exactly to that your point we were talking about the fact that you know we already have so many movies to look forward to you know in the last quarter of 2019 here and then here comes another movie which we didn't even know existed and you know has the potential to be one of our favorite movies of the year um i think this looks great i love mark ruffalo as an actor i think particularly in these types of movies he's great you look at spotlight and uh you know zodiac which i think are tangentially related uh to you know sort of the tone of this movie um and yeah it's it's a provocative story dupont i believe is is who's getting uh name dropped here and who's getting called out so um you know that's interesting uh and who's the director on this i believe it's someone uh somewhat interesting right of course yes todd haynes of of carol fame so um yeah let's let's do this (laughs)
0: <laughs> All right Scott our final trailer uh, for for this episode is the rhythm section. It's a movie that we thought we would be getting this year uh, it, around Thanksgiving It got pushed to January so it's actually the uh, uh, our first trailer for a 2020 movie uh, that will be I'm sure we'll be talking about at some point in the podcast uh, and that is of course it stars Blake Lively and this sort of spy revenge. Uh, action thriller type movie, Scott. And I don't know what I was expecting before I saw this trailer when I, you know, I'd read some plot descriptions and um, primers for this film that have come out in in, in articles that have talked about casting news for the movie. But man, what we got in this trailer was not whatever my like vague mental image of this movie was. And I was really into it.
1: Yeah, I was into it too. I think, you know, a with somewhat of a caveat that these types of movies, you know, in, in recent years, like, uh, thinking about like atomic blonde peppermint, uh, from last year, a couple of years ago, even red sparrow, which had, it's definitely had uh, its moments, but was overall kind of a mixed bag. Um, I think that, uh, you know, like I said, they've been a mixed bag to, uh, just not really very good altogether. Um, and so I, that does make me a little bit nervous, but I mean, Blake Lively's awesome. It looks like she's going to kick some serious butt in this movie. Um, And I've heard good things about uh, the director of this, Reed Murano, as well, Um, a female director, um, which uh, is, you know, is interesting and uh, could add uh, some more layers to uh, this movie that I hope will be a step up over all of those movies that I just named.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have a supporting cast that also includes Jude Law, Sterling K. Brown, so, I mean, this movie is well-equipped to perform well, but you're absolutely right. You know, we've seen some of these, you know, early early parts of the year movies that are, you know, action that you kind of expect to be kind of, kind of summer blockbuster movies, but for some reason are getting dumped in the first quarter of the year. They have been a little bit disappointing sometimes, and I'm really just hopeful that this will break the mold, but uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that all signs point that it's going to. Break the mold, but it's definitely uh, portraying a, a, a grittiness that I wasn't necessarily expecting uh, when I first learned about this movie. But the fact that this is a, a revenge spy thriller with Blake Lively, who I think is someone who we haven't seen play this type of role with a supporting cast of you know someone like Jude Law, who maybe has been a bit hit and miss in some of the movies that he's done more recently. But I think overall is an incredible actor. And then Sterling K. Brown, one of my favorite actors in Hollywood right now, and the roles that he's getting are all have been very interesting. Uh, and he's been a part of some really great films. Uh, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful about this one, that maybe we can get a movie, you know, that comes out and, you know, the last day of January, I think it's January 31st is the release date. Maybe we can get a a movie that knocks it out of the park, uh, you know, a la Get Out that I believe also released that early in the year.
1: Yeah, you know, I was going to say, we do tend to think of January as sort of a drought for good movies, but uh, there are definitely some exceptions in there. And so uh, I'm also hopeful like you. Yeah, for sure.
0: All right, Scott, I think that should just about do it for episode 58 of Some Like It. Scott, do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today?
1: We got seven games to go. Actually, six games to go. Indians are tied for the second wildcard spot. Um, When we record next week, uh, we will know if they are in the playoffs or not. um, And that will probably affect the episode uh, to a great degree. Well, hopefully it won't affect your uh, perspective on the movie that we watch next week. But so be it if it must. Yeah, hope hopefully not either. Uh, but what it does mean is that I will be planning my movie time schedule around whenever the games will be. Fair enough. All right, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Scarby
0: Dent. All right, and I can be on at shelton2013 over on Twitter, where you can also find our podcast at at media plug pods. We'd love it even more though. If you check out our podcast, Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods, where there are a bunch of different reward tiers to check out, depending on how much you're willing or able to pledge to the podcast, you get uh fitting, fitting rewards for that. So we'd appreciate it so much, even if you only contribute at that $1 level again, that's www.patreon.com slash media plug pods. Check it out for yourself. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon though, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple podcasts, Podbean, and, and, Wherever else that you uh, listen to your podcast, where we'd appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us, as well as subscribe and share it, so we continue to reach a broader audience. All right, I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you for taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. We'll be back next week with Hustlers. We're you know a few weeks late on that movie, but uh, it, it, we everything we're hearing is positive. It's the real deal. J Lo is back after a 22 year hiatus of good films. But uh, until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thanks for
1: listening.